Welcome to the Compliance Collective Podcast. My name is Lauren Gray from Gray Management Systems, your compliance training specialists. Our aim is to bring you updates, tips, and important information regarding all things compliance. Thank you for joining us. Hello and welcome to this week's episode. This is the second part of an interview I conducted with Dr. Amina Shawkat from ABLE Australia. Amina is the National Quality and Compliance Advisor and she shared her experience leading ABLE in the transition across to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. ABLE Australia is a non-for-profit organisation providing services in Tasmania, Victoria, the ACT and Queensland. In the first part that aired on the 2nd of September, Amina discussed the process of registering online and conducting the self-assessment on behalf of ABLE Australia. If you would like to know more about the self-assessment process, please head back to part one and take a listen, especially if you're a new provider. In this episode, I continue the conversation with Amina, where we discuss what happens after the initial registration um, regarding the audits, the different stages of audits, and her experience from a provider's point of view. For our friends in WA, there is a variation in how you must submit all your registration paperwork, but beyond this process, it's the same. After you submit your registration to the NDIS Commission, you will receive a letter back from the Commissioner. The letter will detail the registration groups you are applying for and what parts of the practice standards, the core modules, that you therefore have to meet. This is a scoping document that you will then need to provide to an approved quality auditor. And this is the next stage in this process. Before I share the remainder of my interview with Amina, I'll quickly discuss what an approved quality auditor is and how you can find one. An approved quality auditor is a certification accredited body, a CAB, who is regulated by JAS ANS. They're the regulator responsible for making sure the NDIS approved quality auditors are doing the right thing, just like the Commission oversees providers. An approved quality auditor has the task for assessing providers seeking to be registered under the scheme and they report their assessment and findings and recommendations to the NDIS commissioner but the commissioner is who ultimately makes the decision about your registration. It is the provider's responsibility to select and engage with an auditor. For some providers you may have already an existing relationship with one of these AQAs because you maintain a quality management system such as ISO 9001. As long as your certification body is an AQA, then that's fine, you can continue to use them. However, not all certification bodies are AQAs. Just to give you an idea of how many, there's over 130 certification bodies, but as of today, there's only 14 approved quality auditors that can actually conduct an assessment in regards to your application for the NDIS. So to locate one of these approved quality auditors, you need to go to the NDIS Commission website where there's a list of auditors you can choose from. If you're unsure about where to begin, my advice is to contact a number of these approved quality auditors and just have a discussion about your needs, your business and what registration groups you're applying for. Request a proposal and then like any other commercial arrangement, compare and select. Other than the cost of what it will be to take you through the certification or verification pathway, it is important to take into consideration the approved quality auditor's reputation and seeking feedback from your other NDIS colleagues who have already gone through this process. I think that's 
Another important consideration is also how well your AQA engages with you and whether they actually understand the services you provide. You really want an AQA who can get to know you as a provider, as providers are just as unique as every NDIS participant is. So a cookie cutter approach doesn't exactly fit. So the reason why I say this is because the NDIS practice standards overall is a non-prescriptive standard with some exceptions. And what that means is providers have the freedom to implement the practice standards that best suit their business activities and is proportional. And proportionality is a key word that is spread throughout the practice standards. It is similar to ISO 9001, the quality management system standards that you may or may not be aware of. But regardless, it, it, the practice standards is a framework to leverage off rather than be restricted by. So to give you a practical example, if you are a provider that needs to meet the core module, there is a risk management um, requirement within the core module where provider needs to have a documented system that effectively manages risks within their business and is proportionate to the size and scale of the provider. And so for a rather large and complex provider, you may actually see a risk management system, a quite a large framework um, compared to a smaller provider who may actually have a simple risk matrix in an Excel spreadsheet that does the job fine for them because they can still easily track and record their risks and opportunities. They can still implement controls and use this to communicate with management and staff. So they're still meeting this risk management uh, standard within the core module, but it just looks different. So I hope this information has been really helpful. Please join me now as I play the remainder of my interview with Amina Shortcut. To catch you up, Amina has just finished explaining how she submitted the registration and self-assessment online and how she's now received the scoping letter from the Commissioner. She goes on to provide her experience as a provider going through the different stages of a certification audit. Thanks for joining me and I hope you find this podcast episode really helpful. So when we started with the, um, when we got the initial scope, um, we got engaged with the auditor, mm -hmm. um, the external agencies. Um, we got the proposal and how would it look like the with the cost of um, stage one, how much would it cost, stage two, how much would it cost, mm -hmm. and the the time frame it will take, like it's, it's going to be one day or two day, how many auditors do we need, one auditor or two auditors, mm -hmm. based on the size of the organization and of course the number of clients mm, absolutely okay. yep and how many sites did you have as well did that was that a factor in that was a factor in absolutely so mm. that was um we had around about 45 estimate sites because that's around her states mm. uh, around victoria tasmania um queensland and ACT. yes yeah so that mm. was a big factor as mm. well and the number of staff because we have around 600 staff Mm. And that's great. And you mentioned that you had a fair amount of communication, um, I think, um, with the lead auditor there, which is really important too. Um, so leading up to stage one, what is stage one for everyone um, going through the certification process? Stage one is all about documentation. Mm -hmm. It's all about desktop audit. So it's one auditor, lead auditor for us who spent like about a half a day reviewing all our policies, procedures, 
how do we do things mm-hmm. um, in our organization in a written format. Mm-hmm. So it's all about what are our practices mm-hmm. in a in a, in a word format. So mm-hmm. it's reviewing for all the modules. Um, how did we capture in form of a policy or procedure? Mm-hmm. That's basically stage one audit is. Yeah, yeah, that desktop audit. Yeah, and looking desktop. at all that documented um, information. Mm, yeah. Documented. Looking evidence. at our old processes, process maps, mm. our forms and templates, and mm. all sort of documents. It's all about documentation. Mm. And that's predominantly. Um, so um, that was done remotely. That was done remotely. That's right. Yeah, which is um, generally what happens. And then between stage one, what happened there? Was there much communication as to how that stage one went, and then where to next? Yes, so um, we had a date set when the stage one would be conducted and we knew we were communicated, okay, we are going to be getting our results in about a week or two. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got a feedback if with our compliance level in stage one. Mm-hmm. So if there is any non-conformity and if there is any area for improvement, if do we need to provide additional evidence mm-hmm. to, um, to support our uh, indicators. So... For, with, luckily with us stage one we didn't really have much of non-compliances and right. we, they were happy to proceed with stage two Perfect. because stage one also determined that if the organization is actually ready for stage two or no mm. so it's a very nice checkpoint mm. before the whole audit happens um yeah. and this identifies this saves a lot of time for your organization as well if they're not ready for stage two mm. and of course the cost yes so um, for, yeah sorry i was the, just going to say it's quite common you know, for a yeah. lot of other um, a lot of other standards and certification processes to do that initial desktop check and then before we actually uh, come out and um, out in the flesh and, and have a look. And so, sorry, I just interrupted you. And then from there, the stage two, can you talk us through that process? Yep. So um, after we receive our stage one results, we knew our compliances um, or non-compliances where we need to work on. Um, stage two um, audit dates were given to us, which was supposed to be done within three months. So that's why our stage two was in February. So stage one was in November, end of November. Stage two, we went through uh, mid of February. So stage two is all about demonstration. Mm. So it's on how we put our policies and procedures in practice. This is a time when you can actually show the hard work mm. um, and all the wonderful efforts you have put in uh, developing the system and processes. So that's what stage two is all about, getting all geared up and okay, <laughs> doing the interviews and just showing whatever you have done, improvements and also that's what stage two is all about, actions. I like it. And I like your positive uh, attitude <laughs> towards it too because it is, it's a great opportunity to show all the hard work, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, and absolutely. if there are any gaps, please tell us because... You know, aren't we lucky that, um, you know, that's been picked up? So I Absolutely. like that. And so the auditor obviously wanted to do a, um, as you know, a selection of interviews with staff and participants. Yes, so, absolutely. Yeah. So the before uh, stage two was conducted, we one of the things we needed to do is to provide the list of clients we have, of course, um, number of clients we have, but de-identified, mm-hmm. um, and the number of staff we had. So that's part of stage one. So uh, based on the size of the organization, they had to sample. Mm-hmm. So in 
after the um, after the auditor has sampled how many clients and stuff they'll be doing, uh, we had as an organization as a provider, it was our obligation that we have to make sure we have got the consent from the client mm-hmm. that they are willing to participate if they're you know um, if they'll be selected yes. um, at the auditor. So that was part of stage two. Mm-hmm. Um, Another thing about stage two, we also need to remember that by this point, auditor already knows what our policies and procedures are. Mm-hmm. So in a form of documents, so this is actually the time of action, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, the most important thing is to ensure before the stage two audit commence, we have got the consent from the sample clients. Mm-hmm. It's very important. We don't want to share anything where we're not sure about if the client has agreed or no. That's mm-hmm. forbidden. Mm-hmm the privacy acts and all that takes part in it so um also sometime when the auditor would be reviewing some some files they might come across you know they want to see some consent they want to have a look at okay incident for example if the auditor would ask um could i please review the incident from so and so on month we need to make sure that we have actually got a consent it's Mm. a very important thing consent is an essential thing to Mm -hmm. make sure that they've got consents So that's about stage two. Hmm. And was there also a sample of your sites that were visited as well as part of the audit? Yeah. Yes. So sample of the sites, sample of clients, um, sample of staff. Hmm. I'm wondering if we could just quickly talk about evidence because I'd love to hear your thoughts around this. I think it's my experience that sometimes organisations really struggle um, during an audit process sometimes uh, proving that they do certain things. So, and what I mean by this is, um, for example, uh, let's look at the complaints management and resolution rules. So a provider, you know, might say, yes, absolutely, we do manage and resolve complaints, but they struggle to show anything that would prove that. So maybe they're, they're a relatively new provider and haven't yet received any complaints. So there's nothing to show how they manage that system. So way in which that they could show is having, you know, a documented um, management system so they might have procedures policies in relation to that where they can say yes we haven't got a, a complaint yet but this is what we would do and this is how we've recorded it and I think it's important that evidence can come in all sorts of forms so everything needs to be documented but that doesn't necessarily means it needs to be in a written format so you know, I've I've seen things. It could be in charts. It could be um, uh, videos. It could be images, um, or it could be more traditional. You know, your written policies, procedures, and so on and so forth. Did you struggle at all, or what was your experience with the auditor? Um, you know, demonstrating evidence of how you actually were meeting these uh, modules within the practice standards. Well, the good thing um, during stage two was that by that point, we had developed a good relationship with the auditor Mm. and we have asked so many questions and we got really lucky with the auditor as well. There was a lot of transparency Mm. and the two-way communication was thoroughly followed. Like, okay, if I'm not understanding what the auditor wants, I would be very like clear or comfortable in asking, okay, what exactly are you looking for? Mm. So it's very important to have that relationship with an auditor and to feel comfortable. Mm. Okay. Um, so 
instead of getting panics or if instead of having an anxiety oh i don't have this or if an auditor is going to ask me can i fix it tonight or something it's very important to have that communication with the auditor if something is not clear mm. so in terms of evidence uh, we didn't really have any trouble with um identifying um, or providing any evidences because the evidences could be in different form. It could be an observation. Mm -hmm. That could be an observation um, evidence, like um, auditor going around and observing how staff is communicating with um, with a client could mm. be, you know, bearing in mind the culture and so many other. So observation is another way of having an evidence. So evidence doesn't have to be necessarily a document. Mm. Yes. The other way of identifying if we need to have a documented evidence is to look in the standards if the standards as you have already mentioned they are quite subjective they're not very objective um, if the document specifies a plan a word called plan mm. then we need to have a written document we need to have a plan okay that's clear mm. if a document says the organization has to have a policy or a process then we okay might need to have a look okay can we use a process map can we have just a policy so just to look at those keywords mm -hmm. in the standard within the standards are they requiring um, a written document or they're requiring mm. just an, you know just a process which could be just a practice mm. that's a really good point there yeah thanks for raising that um, one thing I, I wanted to ask and I know we touched about it upon in the first interview but just in relation to the rules so there's rules that underpin um, and sort of shoot off from the practice standards. W was that clear to you when you very went at the very beginning when you first started to delve into the NDIS and actually sort of work out w what was actually going on and, and what you needed to do in order to comply with this? It was a bit of a challenge because I think with the NDIS practice standards, there is, there, there is a bit of a need of an alignment so the information needs to be in one place. So it can be tricky for providers sometimes to all have all information in one place. For example, um, we do have uh, something around NDIS um, around the training. Mm. So yes. So practice standards is totally talking about practice standards, but it doesn't talk about what the staff training requires. So there is another more. Um, it's not on my. Uh, it's not coming in my head at the moment. But there is another book which talks about what is a staff level of training we need to provide if we are providing the high intensity. Yes. Yes. Right? So these these are the kind of things I found challenging because they don't refer. They don't talk to each other. Mm. So there is there is a lack of alignment there. Mm. So, so it's it would be hopefully in future if it comes all one together. Mm. Um, another thing is about. As you have, I think, Lauren, we talked about the incident management. Mm. So because I have a previously experienced that it's a very important thing for an organization to have a proper incident management system. Yes. So uh, from previous experience, I knew that, okay, this is what incident management procedure is talking about. That's how we need to have a flow. That's how our staff should be trained with the incident management procedure. This is how we monitor on at governance level our incidents. So, and how do we close the loop of incident? How do we provide the feedback? So the whole process of how do we manage from the time the incident is raised, how is it put in the database or how is it captured mm. and how the staff is trained to identify what category of incident it is and then how the actions are taken, the whole loop, the whole process, it's not defined in the practice standards. So yeah. it's totally up to us. How do we 
create the system. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, so there's certainly a lot of area for improvement for NDIS practice standards for them. <laughs> yeah, of course. And like we said before, but it's, it's, at, it's at the beginning and there's opportunity there to mature and it will mature over time like anything else, which is great. Mm. Mm. It's... um. It just sort of springs to mind because there's a lot of, um, you know, all your um, colleagues in WA, they're getting ready to, to make this transition in summer's beginning. Um, and I think that sort of kicks off from the 1st of December too. Um, they really need to start learning and, and reading up <laughs> about all these different, uh, the, end, the practice standards and the subsequent rules and the code of conduct and everything else that supports that system. So um, if you haven't already started reading, there's a some nighttime bed reading for you, <laughs> waiting for you. I think um, it's a lot of information around. It, um, it is. Website, yeah. It is. Um, I just wanted to touch on about internal auditing because obviously that's something, and that's how we we first met one another. You've come on our training courses, and you're now a qualified lead auditor, which is fantastic. So internal auditing is a requirement of the core module. Um, did you see this as a, an important activity to also not only just make compliance with the practice standards, but um, like a, a really good way in order to monitor um, and ensure continuous improvement? Absolutely. I am big on with the internal auditing and I just believe that an organisation cannot improve if they don't know how they're performing. Yes. So internal audit approach is the best way to find out why are we performing this activity, first of all. Mm. How are we performing and, and what outcome are we achieving? Mm. So are we achieving the desired outcome? So how do we do this by internal auditing? Mm. And I really, really, really enjoy and encourages all the organizations to do the internal audit. Mm. Um, and it's also prepares you for the external audit. Mm. Absolutely. So by the time the external audit comes, you're already ready because you know that your internal audit is in place. You know what's the process where your gaps are already. And by the time you are going to do a self-assessment for another external auditing age for accreditation, you know the process. And also internal auditing, not not one person. Again, I always bring it to the that auditing is not one person role. Quality is not one person role. Accreditation nice. is not one person role. So internal auditing have a team and have an audit mindset, involve the relevant um, service leaders or involve the people from relevant services and have them on board. So have the audit mindset to continuously improve. So internal audit is very important. Absolutely. And it's a great opportunity for collaboration, I find, especially in large organisations, you know, that really um, maybe people who were previously working in silos have that opportunity to actually learn what their neighbours do for work and vice versa and then have a greater appreciation because obviously one of the core principles is you don't audit your own work, um, you know, so you go into another area, step out of your comfort zone and, you know, conduct audits with your colleagues, not against them. I think that's absolutely a very absolutely. important message, um, certainly, yeah. certainly that I have for out there. Um, and it's, again, it's all about auditing processes, not auditing people. Ah, good one. I so. like it. <laughs> it's so true, though, isn't it? It is. It really is. It's. It's so true. It is just a process. Yes, it's not personal. Um, so, what advice um, before we we wrap up would you have to other providers that are about to embark on this journey with the NDIS? So, first of all, I would say it's a it's a process. It's a long process, but it's not scary. Mm -hmm. So, 
it's okay. It's something we need to do. And the only way to get through this phase or this process is with the teamwork. Mm. So teamwork is very essential. And from my own personal experience, if I didn't have a good team, it would have been difficult. It would have been really difficult um, to gather the evidence, to communicate with auditors. So it's all about the teamwork at this point. Um, if the quality system is embedded in operations level, that it will not seem like an additional task. So make sure that whatever gaps you have identified during your self-assessment, um, whatever processes you are creating to meet the NDIS requirement, it's going to continue. Mm. So it's not one-off thing. Mm. So because the NDIS renewal or NDIS registration is a three-year process, so once you do your first registration, within 18 months, there'll be a surveillance audit. Mm-hmm. So to avoid to go through that panic attack again, make sure the system processes, your procedures, your policies, all are embedded and everyone is understanding what it actually means. Mm. So it's it's a continuous thing. It's a continuous journey. Absolutely. It's not going to be a one-off thing. It's not about passing an audit. No, it's not about passing an audit at all. And it's all about client safety. It's all about staff safety. So there is a lot of aspects to it. So if you are in a rush to go through the audit right now, that's okay. Go through the audit, but do make sure that you have time post-audit to reflect back what were the lessons learned during the audit? What were the areas of opportunity or improvement you identified during the audit? Because during the audit, the auditors will be giving you some observations. They will be giving you some tips, which will be very, very important because they are coming, they're auditing many different organizations, right? So that can be used for your internal improvement. Mm. So the other advice, keep on doing internal audit. It's very important. Absolutely. Get through that, yeah. We'll leave it there. I just want to say a massive thank you uh, for giving up your time today to um, record this interview. I really trust that um, you sharing your experience um, and providing some insight is definitely going to help some other providers out there who are about to embark on this journey. I am a massive believer about um, sharing information and connecting um, with others in our industries um, and working together. And ultimately, it's um, especially in the NDIS space, it's so important to continue to provide excellent quality, safe services for people with disabilities. So thank you so much, Amina. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to to share your story with um, your colleagues. Thank you, Lauren, and all the best to all the providers out there who are going through the registration or renewal or first. So all the best to everyone. (laughs) Thank you for having me here. Pleasure. No worries. Thank you. Thanks for listening in today. I hope that you've found this episode helpful and informative. Please take a moment to hit subscribe. And if you know someone in the compliance field or someone who may just be interested in today's episode, please feel free to share. Be well, stay safe and happy auditing everyone.